0: Welcome to Yeehaw with Reverend Bones. My guest today is Daniel Bleakley. Welcome, Dan.
1: Thanks very much, Bones. Nice to be here.
0: Very lovely to have you. So, Dan is a climate activist and Tesla evangelist, I (laughs) would say. Um, You may have seen him on Coal Miners Driving Teslas or seen his witty cutting... Erudite tweets. Um, So I've invited Dan along today for a chat because one of the things with the climate issue is that uh, it does seem all doom and gloom. And Dan, you strike me as someone who does a really good job of also sharing the positive vision and trying to get people's heads out of the past. Again, I'm thinking about all the the benefits of this transition to renewables. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to for our conversation to go into that territory, but maybe before we do that, tell us how, how did you get into the coal miners driving Tesla game and, and what, what switched you on to the climate crisis?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. Do you want me to go right back to the very beginning of it? Take Um, us back to the very beginning to explain how it all happened, I need to talk about my upbringing and, um, yeah, I was born up in Mackay in central Queensland. And from a young age, when I was very young, my family moved out to a little town called Clermont, um, which is about 300 kilometers west of Mackay. Um, uh, and Claremont is, um, one of the coal mining towns in the Bowen Basin, which is in a coal heartland in in queensland and i grew up there I, I did all my schooling there and yeah my parents still still live up there and my, one of my brothers lives up there as well um and i think about about a third of the town worked in in the coal mine um there's a whole bunch of other coal mining towns around the place and yeah i did all my schooling there and then uh when i finished school, I did a, a year exchange program in Germany and then came back, studied mechanical engineering. And it was around that time that I started learning about um, climate change and uh, yeah, I, I started to get pretty worried about it. I think in 2001, I wrote a letter to um, the Queensland environment minister asking why uh, the Queensland government wasn't doing anything to act on on climate. And I got some rubbish response back from, from him saying that they'd built a one megawatt hour, uh, macadamia nut husk power plant on the sunshine coast. So just
0: relax, Dan, (laughs) just, just don't sweat it. We got it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, basically. And because I was studying engineering and and thermodynamics, I kind of knew that that was just a drop in the ocean and, and, um, yeah, he was kind of fobbing me off a bit, I guess. Um, and then in, in 2005 I read Tim Flannery's book The Weathermakers and that had a really big impact on me but even back then I still saw climate change as something that was going to happen a long time in the into the future maybe a hundred years away and it was nothing to really panic about or, or, or worry about um, so yeah I was never I wasn't politically engaged I wasn't involved in any activism I'd never been to a a rally or, or any of that kind of stuff. Like um, studying engineering, we weren't hanging out with the art students doing the, the political stuff at university. We were crunching numbers. I oh, we were at the pub drinking beer most <laughs> of the time. Um, so yeah, then I just continued on with my career and um, I, I actually worked three months, part of my degree, I worked three months at a coal mine uh, in my hometown as part of the practical experience. Um, and then worked in Brisbane for a little while developing hydraulic equipment, and then ended up, um, over in the UK and I actually, uh, got a, had a job in the oil industry in Aberdeen up in Scotland doing an R and D project. So I was up there for about six months as well. Um, came back to Australia and, uh, started a business and, um, ran that for about 10 years. And I was still really following climate change really closely and, and following Australian politics around climate and following the technology as well. So, so, um, I was really interested in electric vehicles that, that whole time. And, um, yeah. And then about three years ago, I was listening to a radio program on Radio National and the presenter was interviewing three young school strikers. Um, who were all around 10 or 12 years old. And they were all so passionate and articulate about um, protesting for action on climate. I, I thought to myself, you know, if these, if these young people can stand up and, and do something, then, you know, so can I, or why aren't I do, doing anything? So then I joined um, the Greens. So I was living in Melbourne, I joined the Greens party, and I volunteered to campaign on Adam Bance campaign in the in the 2019 election and did a whole bunch of door knocking um, and engaging with with people and then after the election i so i'd met quite a few people through that and after the election um a friend introduced me to extinction rebellion and um all of a sudden i was meeting all these other people who were also really um, passionate about action on climate change And then a few months later, I was blocking roads with other people in Melbourne and doing this kind of part of this, a lot of these kind of spectacular um, actions that that got a lot of media. Then in November, I did a 10-day hunger strike on the steps of Victoria's Parliament House. And then a month later, I glued my hand to Siemens office window to protest their involvement in the Adani mine. And so I was getting more and more active and then, yeah, um, it just kept, I guess, kept developing and started using social when, when COVID hit, I started using social media a lot more to try to agitate and, and, um, talk about climate as much as I could. I think it was late 2019 is when I took delivery of a Tesla model three, which I'd wanted for, for many years after following, following Tesla. And yeah, and then fast forward a couple of years in May last year, I went up to my hometown and I hadn't been back for, for years and I took the Tesla and I really wanted to show some people in my hometown, um, how, how amazing it was. And so, yeah, I was staying with my brother. He, he works at a coal mine about a hundred kilometers away. And he asked if he could take the, the car over for a week. And yeah, I said, sure, um, just if you take some of your mates for a drive, just make sure you film their reactions. And so that's what he did. And the, the first um, one of his workmates, he put him straight into the, the driver's seat. They'd just come off night shift. And my brother put him in, um, put one of his workmates in the driver's seat. They drove out of town and my brother told him to come to a stop and then just to, uh, to floor it to 100 and took the video he sent me the video and it was i just thought it was incredible if, if you haven't seen it the guy's face lights up um and he's just having a fantastic time and as soon as i saw it i thought this is this is amazing this is gold and i, and I posted it on twitter and it started going viral and mm-hmm. it ended up getting two hundred thousand views and kind of getting shared all over the all over the world yeah i just thought to myself wow there's there's something there's something in this. And so I said to my brother, you know, bring me as many coal miners as you can. Let's, let's take as many for drives as we possibly can. And that, that's how the channel got started. And, and then it just kind of grew from there.
0: Amazing. What do you think it is about that first instance of coal miners in Tesla's that really caught people's imagination?
1: When people think about, Clean technology, when people think about solar panels or wind or electric vehicles, they don't associate them with coal miners or people who work in the fossil fuel industry. Over the last 20 years in Australia, um, certain elements of the media and certain politicians have done a fantastic job of driving a wedge between coal mining communities and people who want action on climate change. They've turned us Against each other, the the idea of fossil fuel workers or, or coal miners enjoying clean technology was a really good opportunity to reframe the discussion around climate and to show that um, the transition to clean technology is going to benefit everyone.
0: I remember when it first popped up on my feed. I can't I can't remember which platform it was, but it struck me as yeah that beautiful a beautiful way to show, not tell, and to really break down that barrier as well. Um, I mean, you know, even for yourself, you, your brother still working in the industry, you've worked in the fossil fuel industry too. So there is this um, stereotype, I guess, that um, that has been stoked, as you say, this wedge that's been driven to try to say that, you know, it's these communities at war And while obviously coal communities or communities dependent upon fossil fuels, you know, rightly question what's going to happen to them in a transition, um, it does seem like the government's approach is just to pretend like it's not happening and um, lie to the public about the scale of what's taking place right now in energy. Take us back a little bit to, you know, going from mechanical engineering to your you know, your climate awakening, and then moving into non-violent direct action, right? So civil civil disobedience is sort of a, a strategy that activists use and have used in many, many different contexts throughout history to address social injustices. There is this right to protest that we have in, in a free society. As someone who's sort of been through that and done some pretty, like, quite epic um, actions yourself. What do you say to people who are like, you're just disrupting, um, you know, you're just, yeah, rabble, um, rabble rousing. Um, yeah. What do you say to people who take issue with that form of activism?
1: I, I, I've only been really, uh, I was only introduced to uh, activism really in the last three three years. And I've, I've just t- recently turned 40. So I, I never um i'd never been a part of any activist group or anything through my 20s and most of my 30s so a lot of it was new to me and um once i started meeting people and learning about it it really opened up a new kind of world for me and um yeah i see um i see a massive um need for that type of activism it's it draws a lot of it does draw a lot of criticism but it also puts the issue front and center if you think about extinction rebellion most people know what extinction rebellion is um, both in the uk and here in australia Um, but really the the movement's only a couple years old and there's not that many people that are part of it there's only like a few thousand people or you know might be more now but When XR really started in in the UK, there wasn't that many people involved, but they had a massive impact and um, made massive news in the UK and and around the world with just a a small number of people. And it's really what Extinction Rebellion's done really well is to correctly reframe climate change as an emergency Mm. and put it front and center. Civil Disobedience has been used throughout history, and you gave a few examples. There's also the suffragette movement, um, where you know w- women um, were doing incredible, um, incredibly courageous things as well. Um, they were locked out of their homes. They were doing hunger strikes. Um, they were doing all kinds of nonviolent civil disobedience. I think it's incredibly powerful to to do that because you're you're showing um, you're showing people that you know you're you're willing to take this kind of action to because of the importance of the of the issue i guess so there is that part and but you know you, you do draw a lot of criticism for it as well and and me personally from like growing up where i did i've lost a lot of friends because of that style of activism mm. as well um, so it it does it, it does generate backlash but even though it does generate the backlash, I, I still think it's incredibly important to the broader movement. And I, th- I think it's important to look at these movements as as an orchestra. And there's no there's no one right way of doing activism, but having a broad a broad array of different different approaches, we're all working towards the same goal. So you know, pe- people who work in politics or in in research are are doing just as much as as any activist, or the same as people who are chaining themselves to coal mining equipment it's all uh, contributing to to the same goal
0: Mm. and i guess now your focus has changed more to having conversations with people in um this you know futuristic amazing piece of technology known as the tesla (laughs) tell us a little bit about who you've had on so because you you you, it's not just coal miners now right you've taken actually a lot of senators and mps and um you know wannabe mps as well a bunch of independent candidates Mm -hmm. who are running on a platform of climate action and integrity among other things um do you have any favorite stories of the people you've taken for a drive
1: yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as you said, we we don't discriminate against non coal miners in our <laughs> series. Um, so it, it obviously, yeah, it's it started with with coal miners, and and that's really what what kind of went viral, and then the, the media kind of got a hold of it. Um, the first politician I took was Bob Catter, and the way that happened, that greenie, yeah, that big greenie, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my friend. Um, I was having a couple of beers with a, a friend up in Mackay uh, maybe a week or two after the series started. And he said, you should try and take Bob Catter for a drive. And so I put out a tweet and said, retweet, if you'd like me to take Bob Catter, I'll dead set drive, drive to Charters Towers if he says yes. And that tweet got like a thousand retweets or something. And then four days later, I got a call from Bob Catter's staff. And he said, Bob Bob's keen. So I drove from Clermont, to Charters Towers, which is about 370 Ks. And I got there with about 13 kilometers left on the, the on the battery and had to stay overnight so I could charge it because there's no fast charges up there. So I ran a, a lead in through my pub room door, unplugged the kettle, plugged in the Tesla and had a, just got enough charge to take Bob the next day. Um, and that was a real highlight. Um, that, that video also got a lot of views and Bob clearly enjoyed it. I think he gave out three yeehaws. <laughs> <laughs> so that was definitely a highlight. Um, but then, yeah, I went, went on to, to take quite a few senators and, and MPs and the series even took me down to Tasmania. I spent a few months down there. I think probably my favorite of all time so far is um, the drive I did with um, Dave Foster. And Dave is, um, the Tasmanian world wood chopping champion. He's, he's won 21 world wood chopping championships in a row. He's a real Tasmanian icon and a real character. He weighs about 170 kilos and he's 195 centimeters tall. So he's pretty, pretty big guy. He's a big boy. Yeah. And he's really well respected down there by a lot of people yeah i just rang him up and asked him if he was keen for a drive he said yes so i drove up to devonport and we went out for a drive and just his reaction and how, how much he enjoyed it the the episode was was a lot of fun to to shoot a newspaper down there called the advocate someone must have seen the video and then they run ran a story on it um so kind of got even more reach through through that newspaper as well and now yeah now i'm really trying to use the the channel to help Drive more conversation around climate and energy leading up to the the election, which is why we started taking some of, some of these candidates as well.
0: Amazing. And so, what what do people miss? Or well, let's just say you know, you're you're in the day to day, or you're not an energy nerd, or you're not a politics nerd, you're not a climate nerd, but you know that EVs are coming. You know that you know eventually things are going to get there, but it's, it still feels a long way off. What is it about electric vehicles and I suppose Tesla in particular that is going to rapidly usher in this, this
1: new electric revolution and why is that a good thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I talk a lot about Tesla, <laughs> as you probably know, and I often cop a fair bit of criticism because I don't talk about other car companies who who are making electric vehicles um let's say legacy legacy auto companies like Ford and GM um Volkswagen Toyota um so I I do cop a bit of criticism but there is a reason why I focus so so much on on Tesla and it's because the uh, they're so far ahead on technology and really it's it's going to be very difficult for legacy automotive to to catch up to Tesla. T- Tesla's got an incredible technology, but really the, the, the amazing thing is, is that, that it's, it's really a manufacturing revolution that Tesla's driving. Last year, they produced a million um, electric vehicles. So to give you an idea of the, the, the amount of growth that, that Tesla is experiencing now, in the third quarter of last year, Tesla produced 300,000 EVs. And General Motors in the same time period produced twenty six, so there's a big gap. And Legacy Auto are making a lot of announcements that they're getting, that they've got electric vehicles coming. I would say to, to people to temper your expectations on on that because they've been making announcements around EVs for a very long time. I'm not sure why we expect companies that are really good at making internal combustion engine vehicles to also be good at making electric motors and and batteries. It's a completely different product. And from the outside, it looks like a car, but underneath they're they're completely different components and different manufacturing. So I think, yeah. Can we just
0: drill into that for a sec? Because, you know, one of the great things about electric vehicles is that there's so little that actually goes in. Mm mechanically speaking to the engine, right? Like I, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it? There's about 2000 parts in the average ice engine or internal combustion engine, the one that powers most of our transport. But in say a Tesla, EV battery, there's 20 moving parts.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure on the exact numbers. I'm thinking ice vehicles are like 10,000 or more, but it's it's, there's the number of parts, but there's also the moving parts. So the moving parts in an internal combustion engine, it's just incredibly complex that there are pistons and crankshafts and valves and all kinds of stuff. Like really internal combustion engine is 19th century technology, right? (laughs) The the internal combustion engine was, was, um, developed in the 1800s. And we, we kind of forget, we kind of forget that, right? It's It's very old. Yeah. And, um, really, um, the only reasons our world is full of internal combustion engine vehicles still is because it, it's kind of the incumbent. It's the incumbent system. Internal combustion engine vehicle manufacturers and the oil industry have been suppressing electric vehicles for for decades. So the the Tesla, it, it is incredible technology. But we could have, all, we could all be driving electric vehicles now. We could have been driving them twenty years ago. Um, there's a fantastic documentary. Uh, called who killed the electric car, which is about, um, how GM produced an incredible EV in the nineties called the EV one. And they gave a few hundred of them to people in, in the U S to, to try them out for, for six months. And people fell in love with this car, like people fall in love with Tesla now. Um, and it built this big following. And then, um, GM recalled all these cars and crushed them all and buried the project in the, in the nineties. And, um, the commu- the, the community, the EV community that a lot, a lot of the people who had these cars, they formed a, a group and when they were picking up the cars, they followed them and they took them to this like holding pen. And the group set up a 24 hour vigil outside the pen because they'd heard rumors that they were going to crush them. And, and, you know, and they stayed there for weeks and, um, eventually they did. These trucks came and, and they followed them again and they took them to a scrap yard and, and crushed a whole bunch of them. Um, and the documentary is about, well, why, why did that happen? And, and who, who decided to kill that project? Was it the oil industry? Was it the automotive industry? Was it the government? And the, I recommend watching the documentary it came out in 2006 or something like that, but it explores all that, um. But really our our world is full of this inferior technology, this 19th century technology, because it's such a powerful industry. And take, for example, the oil industry generates $2 trillion US every year. Um, It works out to be about $5 billion US per day. So if you're looking at electric vehicles from the oil industry's perspective, Electric vehicles are like pretty much the only threat to the mm. oil industry, right? So, so, every day that the oil industry can delay the uptake of electric vehicles is worth $5 billion to them.
0: When you put it that way, <laughs> you can see how delaying action makes more sense for them. Yeah, that's an astronomical
1: sum. Um, yeah, and just just one more thing on that. Like it $5 billion a day, they could put a billion dollars, they could pay... Um, a thousand people a million dollars each for a year to seed negative fear campaigns around electric vehicles and if it delayed the uptake of evs by one day it would have paid for itself
0: (laughs) it's incredible it's really so what would you say to someone who's like well yeah that's a lot of money but that's good for the economy right like that five billion dollars in the oil industry like We lose that, we decimate that if we switch to EVs. Um, I mean, in my head, I've got the response to that, Um, but particularly, I suppose at the moment, people might be a bit sensitive to what petrol prices are doing Mm -hmm. due to um, the war that Russia's started waging a few days ago in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Um, If people are just thinking about it from a purely selfish consumer hat, how does that transition to EVs actually
1: helped the everyday person. Mm -hmm. Well, that $5 billion a day, that's not coming from thin air. That's coming from our pockets. Everyone who drives a car is contributing that $5 billion to the oil industry and it's highly concentrated. So um, the oil industry, the coal industry, the gas industry, all these um, fossil fuel industries that it's all energy, but it's, it's highly concentrated energy. So, um, just a handful of companies control the supply lines of the oil industry, like globally. So, um, you know, most people have a car and if you've got a car, you've got to buy petrol or diesel. Um, you know, you can't put like orange juice into it or anything. So, you have to go to the service station and you have to buy fifty dollars or a hundred dollars worth of petrol once a week or once every fortnight. And that money is going to the companies that control those supply supply lines. So but then
0: give lots of money to politicians to exactly. run their campaigns to then slow down
1: exactly you've You've hit the nail on the head. like it's a vicious um so so, uh, circle basically so over the last 12 months i've through my social media i've been really trying to talk a lot about the difference between centralized energy and decentralized energy so centralized energy um centralized forms of energy you've got coal oil and gas um, but you've also got nuclear so whoever owns the nuclear power plant has control over that energy Um, you can also put hydrogen in that category, right? Because whoever owns the, um, capital assets to produce the hydrogen also has control over the supply chain of energy. But if you look at decentralized energy, now we're talking about, um, household and community owned solar, um, household and community owned battery systems to store energy, um, community owned wind farms, right? And. That means that households and communities are able to generate their own energy and basically, um, flip the bird to, uh, the centralized forms of energy like coal, oil, and gas. One of the things I've been trying to say a lot is that, um, centralized energy leads to centralized, highly concentrated political power and decentralized energy leads to decentralized political power which puts more political power into communities and into regions. Um, so the decentralization of energy that will come with a transition to household and community owned renewables and batteries and using electric vehicles, instead of relying on oil, you you're powering your electric vehicle off your community energy system. The transition to that will lead to a decentralization of political power And it will put more political power into local communities. And like that can only be a good thing.
0: Yeah, there's something almost um, like quite democratic about that idea of power, like the actual power we use to heat our homes, move from A to B, keep the lights on. Having that come from sources that you own or you and your mates own or you and your neighbourhood own. yeah, it's like it's not something that many of us have experienced. And mm-hmm. the other thing that strikes me is that, you know, I when I grew up, you know, we were quite a cost conscious household. We weren't high socioeconomic um at all. Probably lower middle class you, you could call it, just based mm-hmm. on the income brackets. And um something that sort of my dad drilled into me all the time was turn the like turn the mm-hmm. lights off. Like don't don't leave the lights on. You don't really get it as a kid until you start you know, living on your own paying or in share and you start paying the bills and you're like, Oh God, I see why dad was harping on about this a lot yeah. because energy is expensive. But as the cost of energy decreases and gets closer and closer to zero, sun comes up every day, wind blows at night. Over time, you know, we're getting that we are able to store it in these batteries. Um, that can usher in this sort of sense of abundance that mm. um, until now we haven't really got our heads around. There's a, a, one of our other mates, um, Chris McGar- McGrath, who um, runs 5B Solar. Their tagline is 5 billion years of solar. Mm. Like, what are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Well, 5 billion years of power because the sun's got that much long till it carks mm-hmm. it, right? So, um, so the whole narrative that we've been operating in that's been again reinforced by political figures and we still see it today is the cost narrative rather than the benefit just to go back a sec as well on the like the hard costs there's a um stanford economist who studies disruptive technologies over time um, who's analyzed the ev um, revolution and says that once we get electric vehicles autonomous driving as well as the ride sharing component. Mm-hmm. Most people won't actually own a car and because there's like, you use a car for 4% of the time you've got it. The rest of the time it's sitting in the driveway mm-hmm. parked, you're paying money to have it sit somewhere. In the future, there'll just be like Uber, driverless Ubers zipping around. they probably, a lot of them will be Teslas. Um, and the, the benefit, net benefit to American households by 2030 should this be implemented is like five and a half grand a year yeah. per household. Yeah. Because you're not paying insurance, you're not paying upkeep, you're not paying petrol, you're not paying, you know, for, for the car itself yep. even. um
1: Servicing.
0: Servicing. There? So, the you know, that's like five and a half grand in the pocket. As you're saying, that's the, you know, the $5 billion a day actually stays more with you. Yeah. But then, you know, things like manufacturing, um you know, it opens up the ability for us to produce a whole bunch of different things as well, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's such a good point. Like I, um, I recently took uh, a guy named Saul Griffith for a drive a couple of weeks ago, and Saul is pretty famous in the energy world because he's been driving this Electrify Everything campaign, and he's an Australian. He's recently – he lived in the U.S. for 25 years, but he's recently – moved back and he was actually advising the Biden uh, government on the build back better, um, plan He's now moved back to Australia and he's just launched a new book, um, which is called the big switch. And in it, he, he talks about the things that you mentioned. So the, the $5,000 a year savings per, per household. He says that, um, if you look at a, a community with like a thousand people, when we transition to uh, renewable energy, batteries, and electric vehicles, you're going to be saving like three, four, five million dollars for that that community. That's within a
0: community of one thousand people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. As I think it's around three. I think it's around three million. So it's be so if it's five thousand dollars per household, and the average household's two or three. Yeah. People, it's probably around. I'm pretty sure he, he says in the book it's around three million, um, three and a half million, something like that. So, and then he makes a point, well, then that's, that's three and a half million that you can spend on other things in your community. So instead of that three and a half million going to a handful of oil companies, the Koch brothers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's staying in the community and you're able to, to strengthen your community and, and you know, to, um, put, build all kinds of stuff in, yeah, in, in your local community. So that's really the, th- this is really the big the big vision for, um, renewables over the next 10 years. And yeah, you, you're right. The, the narrative for so long has been around cost and we can't afford, um, we can't afford to move away from coal and and all this kind of stuff, but that's literally driven by the the coal industry is, is, is driving those lines through their politicians, through the, that, that, that they've captured through, through the media that, that, you know, does their bidding. Um, But, and you also mentioned abundance and that needs to be what the discussion's about because, um, you've got like a a couple of months ago, um, on Twitter, a guy in Norway, um, posted a screenshot of the spot price on the Norwegian grid. And, um, there was an abundance of wind energy coming off the North sea into the Norwegian grid. And it dropped the spot price of electricity down to something like 0.1 cents per kilowatt hour. And this guy posted a screenshot of the spot price and said, I've just fully charged my Tesla Model 3 for 10 cents, right? <laughs> now, the battery, like the, the battery will get like 400 kilometers plus out of a Tesla. Um, you know, 10 cents is pretty extreme, but like, even if it's a couple of bucks, like it, this terrifies the oil industry. If you, if you, if you can buy a car that, um, you can travel 400 kilometers for a couple of bucks, why would you ever consider buying, um, an internal combustion engine vehicle? Yeah, you won't. You won't. (laughs) And I
0: mean, the other thing that, um, you mentioned when, when you took me on my first drive in (laughs) a Tesla, which I have to say was pretty great. And there's a whole lot of things about it that, um, surprised me just for the first time of being just the the experience design of being in that, it felt like it was this little spaceship really rather than a car. But you mentioned that they can go for like 2 million kilometers. Like the the lifespan of these vehicles is enormous. Mm. So even just like the use of the materials to make it um, means that like there's far more utilization than if, uh, you know, old combustion engine was shoved in it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's such, yeah, it's, it's, it's another great point. There's, there's so many different aspects to the EV story. Um, it's not just going to be like a a replacement of petrol and diesel cars with EVs. There's all these other benefits that kind of come with it. And you've just mentioned another one, which is the longevity of the, of the vehicles and, and the utilization. So, um, Again, going back to to Tesla, the the battery packs in these cars are doing like are capable of doing a million kilometers. As a guy in Germany who's got a Model S from 2012, he's up to one point four million Ks. He's averaging like 400 kilometers a day just to try to push it as far as he can. Like that's literally what he does every <laughs> he's day. He's
0: driving 400 k's a day just to see how far it goes. <laughs> yeah. And he,
1: he's he got like a sticker on the side of the car and he, he updates it every time he does another 100,000 k's or whatever. Um, That's a 2012 battery pack. Tesla's about to start manufacturing their new battery packs, which are a new architecture and a new chemistry for, for a battery. And They've kind of revolutionized the design and manufacturing of batteries. Musk says that the new battery packs will do 1 million miles, which is 1.6 million kilometers, and they were recently tested by an independent company to see how many cycles these cells could get. And they said, no, well, actually they're going to get 2.1 million miles, which is 3.2 million kilometers, (laughs) right? Um, and to give you an idea of how, like how long it would take, like the average person drives 35 to 40 kilometers a day. It works out to be about 15,000 kilometers a year. So to drive a million kilometers, it would take you 66 years at the average rate, right? So why do we need that much? Well, this is where the next pilot story comes in and it's autonomous vehicles. Uh, autonomous robo taxis, which, um, instead of us buying a single car to transport one or two people a day, and as you said, just going to sit idle for, you know, 22 hours and, and maybe be driving for one or two hours a day, max, um, once you achieve autonomy, um, you now have this asset that can drive around, um, pick people up, drop them off. And maybe that that vehicle that used to transport one or two people is now transporting 50 people. All right. And as you've, as you've said, that means people don't, won't need to buy a car. You couple that with cheap energy. It's, it's like a super cheap version of Uber that's super reliable and fast and, and sexy and sexy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so the next thing will be, well, why will people, bother with car ownership when your transport cost for the year might be a couple hundred bucks why would you even bother buying a car um so i think that's what we're going to see down the track as well and then okay so now we need far less cars The currently globally the, the global car market is 90 million cars per year Well. Wow. We don't need that many if they're autonomous robo taxis. We may only need 10 or 20 million cars per year. So then all of a sudden we're, we're cutting the, um, the resource requirements for the automotive industry by a factor of 10. That's 10 times less iron ore. That's 10 times less, um, uh, copper it's 10 times less aluminum or silicon or all the other components mm. that go in or elements that go into the car. That's ten times less mining that that needs to be done now. Sure, we need to do a lot of mining to to get those um, resources initially, but in the long term, there's another thing that Tesla's doing is is what they're calling non-extractive mining. So extracting the elements from um, old cars and and reuse reutilizing them. So it's really a, a yeah a massive transformation not only from ice vehicles to electric vehicles but the way our whole global economy will will function really my mind was just spinning
0: out a little bit there thinking about the shape of a new economy where resources kind of matter less and what that um, that economy is going to look like one you know, one hope for me as someone who likes making uh things whether it's music or you know conversations is that hopefully it would give people more time to create um yeah. and just sort of lean into that side of our humanity more than um digging not there's anything wrong with digging love digging a hole good exercise um but uh yeah it's amazing can we talk just briefly about the autonomous driving because when we went out for um the first drive or my first drive you know you you were like, oh, okay, do you wanna do you wanna turn on the autonomous driver? And we did. And gotta admit, there's this moment of terror, or mm. you, you know, you just your hands are off the wheel, and then suddenly the car is just merging lanes and slowing down. And it does kind of feel like, well, look, no hands. And there's that little feeling in the stomach of like it's new, and you know, do I trust this mm-hmm. machine? And and all of that. What would you say to someone who's kind of scared of that idea, or you know, can't ever see themselves let, letting the car drive them rather than them drive the car?
1: It's a fa- it's, it's a really fascinating thing because we we already have a lot of autonomy in our world. When when you when you fly in a plane, like most of the time, the plane's like flying itself. But for some reason, with with driving, you know, we're we're really concerned about about letting go and handing over. But really, like the the car, these um, these cars have eight cameras around them. So they have 360 degree vision and they've got these super fast processing chips in them. Um, and basically the way Tesla has approached autonomy is to do it through uh, vision, through, through cameras and artificial intelligence and kind of like image recognition. So a lot of companies early on were, were using LiDAR, like radar to to try to map out the world around the car. But what the people at the engineers at Tesla said, and, and Elon has, has talked about this is, is like humans use vision to drive. That's what we're going to do with, with Tesla. Like the, the way we navigate the world, the way we drive around is we, we look through our eyes and we see signs and we respond to those signs, except the only difference is we can only see in like one direction and we blink our eyes. We sometimes change the radio. Um, sometimes we sneeze or we're drinking coffee or we're checking our phone. Um, the, the autonomous car never blinks. It's got 360 degree vision. It's got a processor that is way faster than our reaction speed. And yeah, it's becoming incredibly reliable. And and what the, the way, to, again, the way Tesla has approached this is they feed their artificial intelligence algorithms with a huge amount of real-world data, which is imagery or videos of cars driving through um, streets. And I've I've seen a lecture by the guy who runs the autonomy program at Tesla, and he talks about stop signs, right? And he he talks about stop signs for like ten minutes. It's quite fascinating. <laughs> um, but he says only, that, only
0: an engineer could say something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it though. I'm here. I'm here with you. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the stop signs. It's pretty cool.
1: It's pretty geeky, but it's pretty cool. He says that like Tesla has tens of millions of images of stop signs, right? From all their cars that are out there. And he says some of the stop signs are bent. Some of them have graffiti on them. Some of them have leaves in front of them. Um, But the more images of these stop signs, they feed the algorithm, the better it gets at identifying them. So, in a nutshell, with, with AI, the way they're using it is they have a department of labelers and the labelers will be like, that's that's a car, that's a um, bicycle, that's a kangaroo, that's a dog, that's a, that's a human, that's a stop sign. And once they've trained it, then the algorithm is able to identify those things itself. So then it's just a matter of scaling up the data. Mm. Musk calls it the March of the Nines. So it's 99% accurate, then it's 99.9%, then it's 99.99, 99999. and then it's getting more and more accurate,
0: closer to perfect, closer
1: to perfect and you know the current software and the other thing to mention here is that you get free over the air software updates. So I bought the car 2 years ago and the, the autonomous driving was pretty good, but every couple of months you get a software update with the latest version of it and it gets better and better and better. And I've noticed a huge improvement just in the last couple of years as to how the car responds. Mm. And currently, even when you're not in autonomous mode, the car will react to a situation. So if another car swerves into you or a car runs a red light, the cameras will pick it up and can calculate the velocity and the acceleration and take evasive action to avoid an, an accident. And I recommend to your listeners to get onto YouTube and search for Tesla collision avoidance and see some of these near misses when Tesla's have taken over and avoided a, what could be a, um, a fatal accident. And if you look at the numbers, the way they, the the way they look at fatalities, road fatalities in the U S it's based on like deaths per million kilometers. So a car might be um, one death per however many million kilometers. So ultimately the safest cars, they average less deaths per million kilometers, for example, per billion kilometers or whatever it is. With the current software, Teslas are 10, you're ten times less likely to get into an accident with the autonomous collision avoidance software.
0: So right now a Tesla, you just buy it off the shelf, drive it around. You are 10 times safer than if you were in any other car.
1: Yeah, even even more so. So Even without
0: autonomous driving. That's just with the current defensive, defensive maneuvers, basically, which is when the car picks up if something happens. And you did show me some of those videos where it's like the car starts adjusting before the accidents almost happened. Really? Like it's it's almost kind of spooky how it'll it'll just read some change that you haven't picked up yet with your regular two eyes um, and wetware brain processing information. (laughs) Um, And it just preemptively will like read the traffic or just adjust. And it's, yeah, it's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah. And, and the, yeah, I think the thing that you're mentioning is like when um, there's, there's video footage of say when you're driving on a freeway up ahead, there might be a couple of cars that are about to have an accident, right? the tesla because of the vision it knows where those cars are and it knows their velocity and it knows their acceleration or deceleration and it's calculating that they're going to hit they're going to hit it knows that they're going to hit like a second before they hit so when you watch these videos on youtube you hear the alert you hear the beeping sound of the tesla which is warning the driver that there's about to be a dist- uh, an accident up ahead and then you see the smash you see the accident through the cameras, right? So these cars are predicting accidents before they've even happened, slamming on the brakes of the Tesla so that they avoid the the oncoming um, accident. And even if you think about
0: that from a public health point of view, I haven't seen the numbers recently, but road fatalities destroy a lot of people's lives. And at some point along this technology trajectory, it's going to be Immoral, almost, to allow us Homo sapiens with our higher order primate brains and um, fickle attention spans yeah. to get behind these rockets and just, you know, hoon past each other at hundred kilometers an hour. Yeah, it's kind of like no surprise that there are so many accidents. But it'll it'll come to the point where public safety is just, hey, we need to. We have to make this shift just because otherwise what? We're just consigning the vast majority of the population to These early untimely deaths and dismemberments and maiming and horrific accidents.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And um, I'm not sure what the current um, road toll is either, but I I feel like a few years ago in Australia, it was around 2,000 people a year are killed. That's a lot. Um, a lot more are are injured, permanently injured. I know in the, in the US, I think it's... 30 to 40,000 people die a year on the roads. If this was anything else, like we would be, we wouldn't accept, Mm. we wouldn't accept those numbers. You know, um, if the current autonomous driving technology can reduce the number of accidents by a factor of 10, you're saving tens of thousands of lives. And then all the associated trauma that, that comes with that from, from, families and friends losing losing loved ones you know yeah. so as this technology develops further and as i said it's, you know it's 10 times less likely now in a year or two maybe it's 100 you 100 times less likely and then it's a thousand times less likely right and then eventually the road toll as we have more of these vehicles on the road the road toll will approach zero mm. and then maybe you know it's it's perfectly safe to sit on 180 kilometers an hour on a freeway between Canberra and Sydney and like, and, or in a tunnel or, or something. You and know. let
0: me say the, again, just going fast, <laughs> haven't been that fast, definitely <laughs> obeyed the law, road laws, but um, the acceleration is something to behold. You, yeah, it's uh, Mind-blowing. Yeah it, is, yeah, it is really mind-blowing. You yeah. feel the G's. So look, it just sounds like EV's a win-win-win. I know that other countries are hooning ahead <laughs> with their EV uptake. Uh, also know that Australia is pretty far behind the pace what do we need to yeah well where are we at currently as globally in terms of EV penetration of our market what's been slowing us down Mm -hmm. and what can we do to speed it up
1: yeah it's a really really good question so at the moment Australia has one of the slowest uptakes of electric vehicles in the world last year I think we're, we're around 0.7% of all new car sales were electric.
0: God, just new, no total. That's just- Yeah, crazy.
1: just new ones. Now, in the last year, the, we've had a 300% increase on electric vehicle sales. So it's now up to 2.1%, which still, it doesn't sound like much, but the growth rate is, is, is huge, right? Mm. But if we want to look at the, the, the leaders, that then you, you want to talk about Norway. I just saw the January sales numbers in in Norway, and for the month of January, eighty four percent of all new vehicles were pure electric. So so we're not talking hybrids; we're we're talking fully electric cars. Eighty four percent all new car sales in in Norway electric, and around only around five percent of new cars sold in Norway in January were petrol or diesel. Wow! So. They are really the world leaders. Norway is going to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2025.
0: That's the earliest. Other countries have ice vehicle bans locked in for like 2035, 2040, 45. Yeah. Inevitably will be brought forward, one would imagine.
1: Yeah, I think there's a few at 2030. The UK is 2035 maybe. But, yeah, I think I think what we're going to see as this transition starts to really take hold is... A lot of these dates will move closer to the present, <laughs> kind
0: of like the closure of coal stations. Again, this exactly. Is, and this is a classic S curve, which Tony Sieber talks about with disruptive mm. technologies. It's kind of think of in our lifetime. Probably the best example we've got is the smartphone, right? If you're you know anywhere in your 30s or late 20s, you probably remember regular like landlines, and then moving to mobiles, but then smartphones and it was like you know a number of years and then just there was this rapid uptake yeah. and you know other phone developers were caught caught with their pants down basically yeah thinking that oh yeah we got we got time we got time we got time and consistently underestimated what happens when a radically new technology is adopted again the, the reason why it's an s curve if you can imagine just an s at the bottom it's sort of quite slow at the start and then we've got this quick rapid uptake and yeah. then once it's almost completely dominated the market it then flatlines and that's the new normal now. And so it sounds like you know, Norway's getting to the top of that their S-curve for new sales of EVs and Australia's still right down the bottom. So what's been blocking it from happening here?
1: Yeah, so there's a, there's a few things. Um... The, 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 the Australian government has has really done nothing to um, incentivize electric vehicles. Um, the other big thing is the vehicle emission standards, which uh, they have in, in Europe, which mandate that automotive manufacturers have to have an average limit on their vehicle emissions, uh, their, their tailpipe emissions. And what that means is like, if they need, if, if, if they want to sell a certain number of ice cars to bring that average down, they need to sell a, a big chunk of electric vehicles as well. Cause it's averaged across EVs their or fleet. hybrids. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, so, that, so what that means is a lot of automotive companies are just focusing all their EV sales into Europe so that they can meet those uh, vehicle emission standards because we don't have any here. So, that they're not even bothering to try to sell electric vehicles and, down here.
0: And does that make us sort of the dumping grounder for the dirtiest cars in the world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It does. Absolutely, it does. So,
0: anytime you're dropping your kid off at school or, you know, um, Dining al fresco. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dining al fresco. Uh, you know, our cars are spewing poison out yeah. into the world and up our nostrils and into our lungs and brains yeah. and bloodstreams. We also don't really factor in how much that hurts all of us as sort of a general population of just sniffing petrol. Yeah, we're Um, all petrol
1: sniffers basically. yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah. On top of the other thing as well is sort of the noise pollution too. Like if you think about how noisy cities are in general, once there's more EVs, less cars, I reckon just everyone's anxiety level will probably like drop a fair bit Absolutely. just because there's like less just underlying sound um, just going. I don't know. That's that's a hypothesis of mine that I haven't fully investigated, but I do think I, I there's think been there's research, some research on, it.
1: on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like there, there's there's this constant background noise in in cities. Where you know you, a city like Melbourne or Sydney, you've got a, a couple million internal combustion engine vehicles that are just constantly running on roads all through the cities and it definitely does impact us you know we're not we didn't evolve to have this constant roaring sound in the background we evolved to live in quiet peaceful areas really and it's really it's one that flies under the radar a lot of people don't think about it but once you do start noticing it it's it's kind of maddening because you hear it everywhere like
0: it's actually two of the things like part well, part of the reason why I really love living here in Canberra is is because of that. Like in cities, because I, I grew up in the country um, too here in, in New South Wales, um, so I'm used to having pretty clean air mm. and, you know, aside from when your mates are lapping the main and, you know, you're getting a good rev on, yeah. um, the general sort of latent ambient noise is, is not great. Um, whereas in a city, I find overall... It's just something that I just end up feeling more out of place, yeah. more off-put. Again, it could be just because I you know, grew up in, in that particular sort of more quiet, rural, regional environment. Um, but it, it took me a while to kind of figure that out for myself that from a mental health perspective, I really like clean air and I really like um, not having that sort of noise noise pollution. Yeah. And then save, saving it for like slamming beats and having you know, great <laughs> yeah. great music at parties and whatnot. But um,
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah. I I like to think of it like, um, imagine a, a fish lives in a little like polluted pond, right? And the fish has lived in that polluted pond its entire life, and the fish feels like pretty miserable, um, but. For the fish that's just how life is life is just miserable it doesn't know anything different and then you take that fish out of the polluted pond and you put it into a clean pond and all of a sudden the fish feels fantastic but it didn't realize <laughs> didn't realize it was possible to feel that good because it's in the it's been lived its whole life in this polluted pond that's essentially how we as human beings are living right now in major cities we are all breathing in diesel particulate and carbon monoxide every single day of our lives there is not a human um, on the planet who lives in a major city who hasn't been breathing in exhaust fumes every single day of their their lives right And this stuff is nasty. It causes asthma. It causes diesel particulate, causes leukemia. It causes cognitive impairment in, in children. There's a study done in the U S where they looked at 20,000 school kids that take those big yellow diesel buses to school. And they had on average like a six point lower IQ than kids who don't, this stuff is making us all sick and it's making us all, all dumber. Right. Um, and when you think about it, it's pretty, um, it's pretty uh, horrible and it's pretty scary, but here's the opportunity, right? Cause we want to keep it positive. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a, there is a fantastic opportunity here. And that is when we do get to hundred percent electric vehicles, it's going to be the first time that humans will have pure, clean air in our cities for over a hundred years. Mm. So there's not a human alive today who's lived in a city with pure, clean air but that is within reach now. What is that gonna feel like? What's it gonna feel like to live in Sydney and go to the park and be able to hear the birds sing because there's no traffic noise? What's it gonna be to live in Melbourne and not see this disgusting black soot all over everything, um, every car and and all over your balcony, um, all over the, the, the ground that's there that people don't even notice anymore? because it's everywhere, mm. um, that actually is all stuff. That's just farting out the back of these, <laughs> um, not 19th century technology. Right. Mm. Um, this will completely change our cities. It will change our communities. It, it, it will improve our quality of life dramatically. And, and it's something to get excited about and it'll keep, and it's keep more save money, money in your pocket. Yeah. I know it
0: really is win, win, win. Yeah. Um, so. The final point we didn't get to which i'd like to maybe finish on today is the like what do we need to do here in in australia to get that uptick or to make it more welcoming for evs and potential ev owners
1: yeah so so there's a couple things like that um i mean if if you're able to join the electric vehicle revolution do it buy an electric vehicle get excited about it and um let as many of your friends and family drive it and, and, you know, um, spread the love, spread the love, create, you know, drive those conversations. That's something we can do regardless of what government we have. Right. But there's, there's a lot that the government can do as well. And, um, both state and federal governments and local governments, um, really, um, if we can incentivize electric vehicles to purchase incentives, Norway, um, since 2001, got rid of the VAT or the what we call GST. They got rid of their sales tax on electric vehicles and the sales tax in Norway is like 25%. So Norwegians have essentially had a 25% discount on electric vehicles for 20 years. Wow! Um, they're allowed to drive in bus lanes. They get free parking. They don't pay tolls. There's all these kind of incentives that we can provide to, to make it cheaper for people to... Drive electric vehicles, um, and um, yeah, the, the other thing is for um, local councils or or state governments to really start ramping up um, charging stations around the place as well. Um, so yeah, there's there's heaps of stuff that that we can do to to accelerate the transition.
0: Mm. And probably one thing to add to that as well is, um, you know, knowing that the government has a big role to play in the in setting the incentives uh again at present we don't have any vehicle emissions standards yeah. on tailpipes, so we're getting the dankiest dirtiest cars while other countries are getting cleaner vehicles there's an election coming think about who is genuinely supportive of uh, increasing ev ownership making it more possible within reach for more people mm-hmm. There's things that the government can also do with the government-owned fleets buying EVs, which then, like, initially it might be like, oh, how's that going to help me? But those vehicles are often sold every couple of years to be refreshed for insurance purposes mm-hmm. or whatever. So that then would create a second-hand EV market, um, which would also help bring down the price. And that's the thing. Prices have been falling over time, right? Yeah. Like, Yep there are lots of cars that people buy that are way more expensive than Tesla's even today
1: yeah yeah, absolutely yeah we've got less than ninety days until the election um, if you want to see a rapid uptake of evs then then do your research find out who your candidate is and find out if they're if they're um, if if they're campaigning on a pro a strong um, electric vehicle policy Definitely.
0: yeah great and for just so you know, you can go to the AEC or the Australian Electoral Commission website to see what elected you're in and find your your local federal MP and or senator. Um, and then there's another website, which is really great, called theyvoteforyou.com. Mm. It's theyvoteforyou.com.au probably. Um, and there's a lot of politicians say one thing and do another. So go there and it they itemize their voting record. So it doesn't matter what they say they stand for, go there and have a look at what they actually vote on. If they voted for a speedy uptake of EVs or for like good climate policy, um, great. If they voted to oppose it um, or to back more coal, fossil fuels, that's a pretty good sign that um, they might not be deserving Mm -hmm. of your support. Yeah,
1: that's a great site actually. Yeah, it's well worth a look for sure.
0: Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Where can people find you on on the interwebs? What where, what would you like them to go to see more of your stuff?
1: Um, yeah. So my Twitter handle is at Daniel Bleakley, and the channel, uh, where you'll see all the, the coal miners hooning around is is called the the YouTube channel is called Coal Miners Driving Teslas.
0: Amazing. Go <laughs> check it out. And um, thanks again, Dan. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks very much, Bones. Yeah, really enjoyed it.